Hello, this is episode 51 of Commonplace Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm Rachel Zucker. I spoke with poet, educator, trans, and genderqueer feminist collaborator and dancer T.C. Tolbert in the small house attached to the Poetry Center in Tucson, Arizona on February 24th, 2018. We spoke, me with my boots off, sometimes lying down, after a full day of panels and events at the University of Arizona's Poetry Center that were organized by the Bagley Wright Lecture Series. All six Bagley Wright lecturers, Joshua Beckman, Dottie Lasky, Terrence Hayes, Chiku Reddy, Timothy Donnelly, and myself, as well as the series editor, Matthew Zapruder, were present, as were many other folks from Wave Books and BWLS. The panels were an intense experience, and TC and I spend a little time processing that experience. We also talk about the long recovery that followed a serious car accident TC sustained a few years ago, and how that affected TC's writing and living. We talk about teaching, talking to a younger self, and so much more. This conversation was just exactly what I needed at that moment when I was exhausted, raw, and coming down with what would turn out to be a bad three-week virus. Re-listening to this conversation two months later in order to prepare it for you, I was amazed to realize how deeply this conversation affected me, not just in that moment, but in the weeks that followed when I went away for two weeks to radically revise my new manuscript of poems and started thinking about how to break down the prose-poetry binary. I realize now that T.C.'s voice and warmth and wisdom has been with me for the past few difficult months while thinking about my body, my health, being porous, being humble, and how to ask for help, especially in, not after, the hard times. I hope listening to this conversation will give you something you need, maybe something you didn't know you needed. TC is truly an amazing human being. TC is also an amazing writer, author of Gephyromania, a full-length collection of poems, and several chapbooks, including I, Not He, Not I. TC is also co-editor with Trace Peterson of Troubling the Line, Trans and Genderqueer Poetry and Poetics. TC teaches in several places, including the University of Arizona and Cascades, Oregon. But these things don't begin to describe the range and depth and beauty of TC's work in life. Early on in the episode, I asked TC to read a long bio. It's my favorite poet's bio I've ever read. So I'll let TC tell you his, her own story. Before I get there, I want to thank the many listeners who tell us through emails and Twitter what you love about Commonplace. We love hearing from you. Thank you to our patrons for making Commonplace possible. If you're not already a Commonplace patron but would like to become one, please go to patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast or our website, commonpodcast.com. At our website, you can also sign up for our once-per-episode newsletter, and you'll find links to the people and texts TC and I discuss in this episode. Patrons will be entered into a raffle that includes Gephyromania, I, Not He, Not I, and Territories of Folding, all by TC Tolbert. 
Troubling the Line, Trans and Genderqueer Poetry and Poetics, edited by T.C. Tolbert and Trace Peterson, and Islands of Decolonial Love by Leanne Simpson. Many thanks to Asada Press, Pity Milk Press, Cory Press, Nightboat Books, and AK Press and ARP Books. Patrons will also get access to sound files of TC reading more amazing poems, TC's syllabus on love, and a PDF of TC's chapbook, Spirare, thanks to Belladonna Books. Here is TC Tolbert. I think, will it offend you if I take my boots off? <laughs> I hope you do. Uh, let's see. <sighs> TC. <laughs> so I just want to start out by saying that I really hope I can do you justice. Um, I am so tired and I'm so um, reeling from various parts of this experience that we just had. And so just to give a little context so that I, that I can be like even in my own body. I was going to say, if you need to process, like, <laughs> like I'm here. <laughs> so we're sitting in this beautiful little house that's part of the Poetry Center. And we've just um, finished the last panel in this like mini conference that was panels and presentations um, connected to the Bagley Wright lectureship. And then the two panels that were today were uh, poetry and autobiography, um, and then um, poetry and non-literary influences. And so those just finished, like maybe 20 minutes ago. So it's been a lot of talking and thinking and processing and a lot of social dynamics. Such a good way to put that. Yeah. A lot of social dynamics. Yeah. So um, in preparing um, to talk to you, I had a funny experience because two days ago I talked to Richard Sykin. And um, that was really interesting. And uh, I don't, you know, I I had never met Richard. Oh. And I, in preparing to talk to Richard, I um, did some research as well as reading his books. And then like maybe three quarters of the way into the conversation, I asked him a question about being a social worker, which he is not. No. And never has been. Right. So I know you much better than I know Richard. (laughs) But I thought this morning, I thought, you know, um, you better just. You better go make sure you know TC's pronouns. Oh. You better make sure that you, um, like, you know, you read the books, but, like, go look up the bio. So what I found in that process was the... F- that I'm my- a social worker. <laughs> You're a social worker. <laughs> no, I found um, my favorite bio that I have ever seen mm-hmm. written by any human being ever and I love this bio both because of the way it like enlarges and subverts the whole form mm. of a bio. And I printed it out and I was hoping that you might read it. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't wait to see which one you're referring uh-huh. to. <laughs> okay. I've never, I've never started one of these before like this. Okay. 
Where did you find this? On the website of your book. <laughs> like, where in the world did this You don't from? have to read it. Yeah, I just, wow. I just love this. I just thought, you know, it relates to everything these panels were about, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I'm supposed to read this, my bio. As a body and a person, as a poet, as these lines in this order, white skin and male passing privilege, breasts I used to bind but no longer want to, soft belly, hips that could easily carry children but never will, facial hair that refuses my jaw while while absolutely flourishing on the underside of my chin. I'm continually interested in the architecture we find ourselves in. At what point does construction become didactic? Where is the space between container and constraint? What happens when we try, and is it possible to subtract formula from form? In Queer Space, Aaron Betsky says, quote, we make and are made by our spaces, end quote. In The Architecture of Happiness, Alain de Bouton says, quote, the significance of architecture is premised on the notion that we are different people in different places, and on the conviction that it is architecture's task to render vivid to us who we might ideally be, end quote. I look at my house, my relationships, the things I'm writing, my body. These are synonyms. And I wonder how non-trans people, i.e. cis people, experience these things. If, is your body an architecture? Is your name? What are you constructing now? Can you visit it and therefore can you leave? Back in the day, my family called me Missy Mo. Missy because it's short for Melissa, my birth name. But also it sounds like and is a bit prissy. An admonishment, maybe, for a certain brand of sass. For being a bit too proud. Mo comes from the Three Stooges. I was born in 1974 in Chattanooga, Tennessee, to a woman named Jeannie Darlene. I became the first person in my family to get a college degree. Think bowl cut, mischievous naivete, round eyes, always a little bit surprised. In low culture, Dodie Bellamy says, quote, If I were to write the story of my life with emotional honesty, my relationship to my body would be the most important thing. Mm. End quote. What kind of body did a name like Missy Mo make room for? Can a name allow? The other day, a few of us were talking about the difference between synecdoche and metonymy. It was a hard conversation to follow. We were hungry, and some of us were sad. Others of us less visibly so. H said that a thumb could always be a finger, but a finger could never be a thumb we decided we needed a Venn diagram. I could only have these kinds of conversation in Tucson. When I moved out here to get my MFA 10 years ago, now it's 15 years ago, I thought the desert was trying to push everyone away. I used to think that publishing my poems would make me a happy person. Ben Ehrenreich in When Animals Conspire says, the desire to order does not live far away from the urge to destroy. In 2001, I walked from Georgia to Maine with my dog, Isabella, on the Appalachian Trail. There, I was given the name Tiger Cakes. When I stood before a judge in 2005 to get my name changed to to TC, 
I told him this story. I was sure he was going to block me from the name change because I wasn't passing at all. I had zero publications at that point. He just said, You mean to tell me you hiked the whole AT? (laughs) Sometimes there are problems with friends. One of us wants to talk about it, lay it out in detail. Inevitably, the other wants to talk less, or at least talk about something entirely else. Bodies, individuals, and groups inherently crave homeostasis. Rilke said, quote, We have no reason to mistrust our world, for it is not against us. Has it terrors, they are our terrors. Has it abysses, those abysses belong to us. End quote. I've been both of these friends. Although it hurts initially, living with a piece of glass in the body is neither as rare nor as dramatic as it may sound. A little over a year ago, I joined a running group. One good friend had just killed himself. The woman I was in love with was no longer interested in dating me. And I had just watched another friend fall over 50 feet in a climbing accident. She yelled and I looked up. Nothing but orange rope and her ridiculous body falling through the sky. When I'm not teaching writing at the University of Arizona or organizing events for Casa Libre, I'm leading wilderness work trips in Colorado for Outward Bound. I got back to Tucson and decided to train for a marathon. The actual running wasn't ever that appealing. When W.S. Merwin asks, how shall I live? All I hear is, who shall I be? Three months into the training, I injured myself and have not yet fully recovered. The new normal scares me. When I tell you I love you, what I really mean to ask is, can I change? My grandparents have figured out how to do this amazing thing where they navigate their discomfort with my gender expression and their absolute love for me by calling me a modified version of my name from the past. I don't see this as disrespect, although I used to. It's resistance, yes, but they are not resisting me. Mo is gender neutral, a bridge, but they would never cop to that. Mo is just a grandchild that they are still proud of. A granddaughter no longer completely unrecognizable to them. A house. A relationship, a relationship to a house. Redesigned. Somehow we, and somehow you, somehow I, somehow still manage to exist. You're right. That's a totally insane bio. I love it. <laughs> I, it's, not, why, it's not insane. It's the best. And and I mean, it, it just, it hooks up to every single um, thing that I've been thinking about. But maybe we could start by just, um, so that was about five years ago? Yes. Would you like to update us? Update us. <laughs> well, some things. Um you know, it, some of the biggest things that have happened since then is I, uh, I was in a car accident mm. and this is almost, almost exactly two years ago at this point. It'll be in, in about a month. It'll be two years ago. And, um, wait, so I was here almost exactly two years ago. Yes. It was, was right this, after that. It was right after. Okay. Yeah. It was at AWP in LA. Oh, wow. And I had had, I was kind of at that point, 
I don't even like to talk about it this way, like in my career, mm-hmm. you know, I say that with air quotes because I, I, I genuinely don't tend to think of it that way, but I do, I do recognize that, that there is a career, mm-hmm. you know, like related to my writing that, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to distance myself. I, I just have to actively work to not focus on it that way because as Dottie asked me earlier, when were you born? <laughs> because I'm a Capricorn. <laughs> and so um, inherently I have a sort of desire to climb mountains, you know, or to climb ladders, things like that, to get to the top, so to speak. So when I think about career, I, I get, I can get uh, really clamped down. Mm. Anyway, all of that is to say, um, at, at that time, two years ago, things were going really well professionally. <laughs> so I was, you know, it was like troubling the line had come out. Gafiromania had come out. Um, I think another chat book had come out, maybe even two. Like I was, I was feeling good and I was in LA for AWP and I was on three panels. Like I was kind of, you know, doing that thing, you know, I'm like, yeah, every time I turn around, I'm going to go talk. And, um, and one of the panels, the last panel that I was on, was a panel that I felt like I had been moving my entire life toward Mm. because it was on trans poetics and spirituality. Mm. And, um, you know, it was kind of this dream panel that (laughs) that I got to put together. CA, Conrad was on it, um, but they couldn't be there. So they sent in a video. Joy Ladden was on it. She ended up getting sick, but we Skyped her in and that worked beautifully. It was actually really beautiful. And, um, and, and then the two other folks who were also on the panel were able to be there, Rika Aoki and Ian Elisante. So there were actually three of us in the room on the panel, two people on, on this big screen, but it ended up being number one, standing room only totally packed Uh and folks were just hungry for this conversation absolutely uh reaching toward every word it was beautiful it felt so connected so i had this you know kind of epic moment at the end of awp that conference happened it was the last slot of the conference and i got in a cab to go back to my you know to the place i'd been staying which for the rest of the conference, I had been walking back and forth between, mm-hmm. it was only like a 30 minute walk, but I had binged on book buying. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, I'm going to yeah. take a cab. And we got into an accident and, um, I ended up displacing four ribs. Oh. Um, it was terrifying. I mean, I really don't know. I, we, we didn't, no one ended up dying, but the way that the cab basically, uh, t-boned someone and it was it was terrifying and so were you the only passenger i was and i was doing i want to make a little psa here i was doing the wrong thing that Uh we all do in cabs i was sitting in the back seat with no seatbelt on oh right yeah i don't do that since spalding gray's accident exactly well i didn't know about spalding gray until after i had my accident and then did all this research about Seatbelt use in cabs. Mm-hmm. Turns out, yeah, it's a thing. So, um, so it was it was very scary, and 
but other than it being very scary, it uh, really changed the course of my writing life because I couldn't write, literally could not sit up, uh, oh. you know, couldn't type um, for any period of time, couldn't read for months. Because of of hitting your head? No, because of the ribs, the displaced oh, ribs, uh-huh. which sort of just go back on their own, <laughs> which <laughs> sounds... I don't know. Even now when I say displaced ribs, it sounds bad, but not debilitating. But I'm here to report it was, it really shook me yeah, um, emotionally and physically. And uh, so for the first, I'd say three months, I was just on my back. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I got to this prescribed regimen of 20 minutes on your back walking for 10 minutes, 20 minutes sitting, walking for 10, all day long. That was my prescription. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so I, I say all of this because I just handed you this little zine. Yeah. And for those, uh, well, certainly for the first three months, but I would say it ended up being about nine months to a year when being at a computer just felt impossible. I would just either be laying on my back or walking around the neighborhood. And I had to take time off work. I should also say like, you know, it was a whole thing. So, um, I was texting with a student with one of my grad students and we started texting haikus Mm -hmm. back and forth to each other. And I would just speak it into my phone because I couldn't really type. And this was an absolute lifeline. Like, I I feel like I owe my student kind of everything. She happened to be in a place where she was struggling to write. And I just, you know what? Just text me some haikus. Mm -hmm. We don't even have to think about it. And then I ended up really (laughs) relying on that. Um, And yeah, it became sort of the, the next bridge, I guess, in my life to getting to writing in a, in a completely different way, a completely different level of urgency um, relationship to the syllable itself, you know, relationship to the stuff the words are made of, not just the words. And, um, and that tiny, tiny accrual. Hmm. Um, I think before I really thought of the page and suddenly I was, I was looking for the change from syllable to syllable. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. And was that more because it was so physically uh, impossible to sustain uh, like extended contact with the page? Was it, was it that you were moving to an oral uh, relationship to language or both? Yeah. Well, both. I mean, I think, um, just logistically speaking, because I wasn't typing and I wasn't writing, um, you know, on with pen or, or pencil, I, I could only say what I could hold in my head mm. and it wasn't very much at the time. And I, you know, in retrospect, um, I can see the ways that I was fuzzy for a long time. Part of that was the pain medication I was on and things like that. But, um, yeah, I was, I was just not, 
I was not well. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I could only hold on to, to very small fragments. Mm-hmm. And so I would lay in bed and work a fragment for hours, you know, <laughs> and, um, and send her a draft, you know, and speak my little haiku in, in the, in, into a text hit send immediately because I, I soon found out that if someone texted me while I was doing that, I would lose the text. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm like, this is not okay. So just send whatever bad draft I was working on and, um, and then revise from there. Uh-huh. But do you want to read some of that? Yeah. It, it's very so fun, fun to see now because this, this little, you know, this little zine, just came out like this month. And um, when I found out about this press, they're in Phoenix and their whole sort of jam is, I think it's six to eight poems, no more than 50 words each, Mm. but they can't like there, you cannot send in haiku. So by this point I had to take how do they know the difference between yeah. a short poem and a haiku? Exactly. Are they counting the syllables? <laughs> they might they? be. Okay. <laughs> but so I was like, oh, this is great because now I can take these, this, at this point, you know, I have pages and pages of haiku. And, um, and I can see if they become something else because their whole uh, concept as a press is they want to print these mini, they call them micro zines, this many poems, six to eight, on one sheet of paper. Mm. And then they sell them for $1. Look at this. It's really gorgeous. <laughs> I'm blown away by it. Mm-hmm. it it's, so in some ways, it's my favorite publication. What's the name of the press? It's called Rinky Dink Press. Best name. I know, right? They're just lovely. And they did, you know, they were like, can we play with the cover? Sure, have a blast. So here's my... Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just read them. Yeah, it's very short. Okay. So the title is Turning to Hear the Last Leaves of Stargazer Fall. Good morning, Okra. Good morning, Mosquito Coil. Hello, fire I will make to keep breathing. Good morning, Addiction. I've missed you. Flies who conflate license and light. I love you, metal handle of a red spoon, ringing the glass bowl while the blue car breaks a little too late for the curve. I love you, 12 feet of string lights inside a birdcage, inside a fireplace turned off. Emptied of itself, the human head weighs eight pounds. Vision admits Light leaves where it is born. Tracing the boy, I see his mother, afraid, her hand outlined under us both. Good morning, old man, sipping the air, drunk with daylight. You have noodles in your beard. There are mountains in the ocean. We don't have to go anywhere today. We move to make the birds move. There are no more boats on the rocks. Good morning, Rental. I want to be a man who says good morning. 
I love you, fence line. The finches threaten one another simply through the act of moving close. A gray horse painted on the side of a building, holy to be caught, abandoned, inside the self, every neck and back muscle quivering. Good morning, accident. The gate is inside of me. I am holding it open with a rock. Beautiful. <clears throat> I awesome. Didn't, I didn't know I could write poems. I guess I still don't in a lot of ways, but in, in this case, I didn't know I could write poems that um, were so sort of explicitly in love with the world. I mean, I, I write a lot from, I feel like you just talked about this, in your panel earlier on autobiography, I write a lot from my, my pain, mm -hmm. from the, the things that are not just confusing to me. Confusion I feel like I can handle often in other forms, but things that hurt me. Mm -hmm. um, that was interesting. Terrence was talking about writing from, bless you, writing from, you know, sort of about what he questions and there's definitely that in my work, writing from what I question, but foundation to, I feel like my work up until this, and maybe it's the foundation of my work in this as well. I've just turned it in some way has been what has hurt and maybe hurt and confused me. And this is, uh, this or maybe the process of healing and having to to love the smallest thing or the smallest changes i mean i laid in that fucking backyard staring at these same finches <laughs> you know it's like every day i was like you know what you guys <laughs> you're great and i want to see something else do you think it's possible that because you were literally in pain for so long um, that in a way when when either of us is writing about pain um, or out of um, kind of painful experiences that it's because in part that there's like a disruption um, but in a way when you were in this like constant pain it, it was almost like taking care of itself. And I know that's a really weird way to say it, but then you, you, you had the opportunity or the need or the drive to write these love poems to the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I was thinking about, I don't know, there's, there's something in my mind that's not uh, quite articulated yet about the gift of writing love poems to to life while being in pain but also the total fucking inconvenience and horribleness of being in that much pain a couple of things come to mind so when i started testosterone i actually spent a fair amount of time look i'm i don't even consider myself someone who's necessarily that into like astrology uh-huh but i have always 
held a firm, uh, a clear identification as, as Capricorn with this, this goat climbing business, uh, or this goat who climbs business, (laughs) climb goats per se. Um, but so when I started testosterone, I wanted to choose very intentionally which sign I started under because it would be my new birthday. Oh, wow. And so I chose um, Libra for the balance because mm. I feel like that is a thing that I really struggle with. I mean, as a, like a, you know, an addict who's, who's no, who's not actively drinking or, or using substances. Um, my, my default is extreme. Mm. And um, even we could say sobriety is extreme. Mm. Right. Um, so, so anyway, I know that when I go to poems, in some ways, I'm trying to balance out what I'm living. Like, it's almost like the contrarian nature in me. So in this case, I'm in so much pain. So the contrarian says, bring the light, like get it, you know, love the world, love the world. That's the only way to balance out this deep, um, you know, physical pain and and a, a genuine uh feeling of like isolation mm-hmm. you know not being able to really go anywhere hang out with people that sort of thing so so a real loneliness so it was a constant practice of what are the ways that I am connected to the world yeah yeah and so and you seem okay now I am so much better. The better I get, the more I'm able to see how bad I was. Wow. Do you know what I'm saying? So I just started going back to the gym to being able to do Zumba, which is my favorite. Uh huh. Um, (laughs) In January. Uh huh. Um, Well, actually, December. So that was a year and a half after the accident. Wow. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been slow. And, you know, my doctor told me it would be, but I was, I think if I had believed it would be as slow as he said it was going to be, I would have been just demoralized. Uh-huh. Um, so I, so I kept pushing against that, <laughs> that timeline and thinking, and it, it didn't happen. It really, yeah, it really was a so, year and a half. So for the past year and a half, have you done any outward bound Yeah. So this was fascinating. So the accident happened in April. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to do a full summer, you know, of outward bound, but in particular, my, my course that I love, um, that, um, both challenges me and gives me incredible joy is the grief course, the course Mm -hmm. for students who've lost someone significant to them. And I, quickly realized I couldn't do the earlier one in the summer and then found out that I was scheduled to do one in August with a a woman I had worked with the year before. And so I just called her and said, I think I can do this if you carry my weight. (laughs) In other words, I can walk up and down mountains. I just can't carry anything. Mm -hmm. And I can sit there and talk to students, you know, and do the, uh, the framing and sort of the emotional, do the emotional container development. And I can, I could not believe how much she rallied around me and just said, 
I want, I want you here. Let's do it. And it was, you know, I was taking heavy pain medicine to do it, but I, as my doctor said, I think it will be so psychologically important for you to be out there that whatever it sets you back Mm -hmm. is in some ways kind of worth it. Um, so I, so I did, and then that's a, it was a seven day course. It was very short and, you know, like I said, I was medicated and I did pay for it <laughs> for sure. Cause I was so out of shape. It was unbelievable. But, um, but it was, it was, it was also that, um, the, you know, you teach what you need to learn, right? So teaching people how to move through their grief, um, reminded me how to move through my own in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, so last summer I did, um, again, one short course. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to carry my weight this time, which mm-hmm. was huge. Um, but I had to do it in a different location. Usually I work in Colorado, but I just, again, wasn't in shape. So the altitude, things like that, I just couldn't handle it. So I did it in Maine, which uh-huh. was great. Um, beautiful. I love Maine. And this summer I'm scheduled for two, one in Maine and one in Colorado. Wow. I know. I'm excited. (laughs) Had you ever had an experience before where you had had to ask someone figuratively to Mm. carry your weight? God. (laughs) Fuck you, Rachel. (laughs) 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 That's my favorite response. Um. I definitely never had to ask someone physically mm-hmm. for that. Um, I had, you know, I'd had a, a couple of experiences where I should have for sure. But I will say, you know, that bio references Casa Libre at some point and um, living there, I lived there for five years, literary arts nonprofit. Um, it was kind of an artist uh, collective space, but we each had our own apartment. And mm-hmm. I lived in, I, I essentially lived in the office. And, um, but what it did is it put me in proximity to someone who now is, is my family, Kristen, who, who ran Casa Libre, who founded it. And the reason I'm telling you all this is at some point in there, my friend Stewball, who gave me my name, Tiger Cakes, died by suicide. Mm. And, he wasn't the first person, uh, to die in my life. Um, or the first close, close person to die in my life. But our, we had, um, one, we had such a deep connection and him giving my, giving me my name. He had just recently come to visit, you know, there had been a lot of, uh, I knew he was struggling and, and, you know, we'd sort of set up some possible, uh, safety nets with me. Um, and so when, when he died, it was literally that next week, the person I'd been seeing and I was in love with was like, she kind of said, you know, I, I don't really want to do this, this it's too, too much. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just felt obliterated. Yeah. And so leaning on Kristen and my friends in that moment was 
was a big um, that that was a big emotional shift for me to to learn that I could mm-hmm. rely on people who were not obligated, i.e., my family. Right? <laughs> not that they, are, you know, are really obligated, but that was a that was a training ground for me. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I ask because I feel like um, you're talking about all these really deep and fascinating kinds of rebirth mm-hmm. right like starting testosterone and choosing when to do that getting your new name having had this period of kind of like helplessness which is very infantilizing oh God. and having to but it's different than actually being a baby because when you're a baby you don't know that you're a baby and when you're an adult and you become helpless or you or not helpless but you need help absolutely help needed <laughs> i don't know what the word is because helpless is not the right word but and then having to to kind of confront that mm-hmm. i think um you know i as it 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 put me into back to some of the experiences that i've had where um like i became a different person mm-hmm. because i had to either ask for help in a different way than i n- ever had before or i had gone through an experience and and i was changed by it so that that's partly why i asked and i guess i'm curious to know so physically you're back to zumba which is great oh my god and so <laughs> so my question is you know are you what in terms of your writing in terms of your artistic work and in terms of your other priorities are you going to go back to the things that you loved and the things that Mm. like made you feel like you Mm. are you going are you kind of gonna continue and who knows but do you imagine continuing down this new path that you didn't expect um you know, either because you're going to keep writing haiku or you're going <laughs> to you're going to continue being in love with the world in a new way or you're going to you something about the experience of having been in so much pain, having mm. been fuzzy, having to have to ask for help. Like kind of where are you now mm-hmm. in your in your development? Yeah, it's so true that the recognition of of um of reliance is is very deep as an adult Mm -hmm. um or and jarring or it was for me um i think because in so many ways i had naively stubbornly add lots of adjectives there uh imagined that i it wasn't that I imagined that I could do it on my own or that I was sort of alone, but that telling people about the help that I needed after I needed it was the same as asking for help when I needed it. Oh. Right? Like I, I spend so much time. I feel like so many of us spend so much time telling our friends things like, Oh yeah, last night was really bad. Instead of picking up the phone last night and being like, it's really bad right now. Yeah. Right. There's a, that there's a world apart and I'm 
was and and probably still very good at reporting on the hard times uh and and had to practice a lot of of saying in the hard times Mm -hmm. so i do think it's radically changed me and my writing and i i don't see that there's any way or need to to go back um, I mean, I think it's made possible the relationship that I'm in, mm-hmm. um, as, as infuriating, right? Like as little as I want to say, thanks car accident <laughs> right, <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's, it's made my, my partnership, my relationship possible because it's made me more porous Mm. Um, humble is, is one way to say it, say that, but I think porous is, is more accurate. I think before I wanted to be in relationship, uh, I wanted to be maybe two, two silos in a field. <laughs> right? And that was <laughs> love. That's a lovely idea. I, in fact, I still love that image, but now, um, what would it be now? I just, I feel changed by being in a relationship to this person. Like, like she gets inside of me and, and I get inside of her. And so suddenly, for instance, you know, really tangible way, my days, large parts of them are spent (laughs) thinking about, well, what should we do with the yard? Uh-huh. Not what should I do with the yard or what am I going to do with the yard? And believe me, I love to think about what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but spending time negotiating things hmm. um, that on the one hand can bum me out because it can feel sort of like mundane or uh, banal in some way. But it is exactly how I want to live my life, which is in collaboration Mm. with someone. It's just so much slower than so-called independence, right? It's process. It's not product. Uh And that has, that's the shift that I think I've really experienced. And you have, have done actual collaborations, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, much more than most other poets, I think. And it's so interesting to me to think about that moment of needing to ask the, the co-trip leader to carry your weight, specifically on an outward bound excursion where it's really about, uh, you know, team building and and not (laughs) independence. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there, it is also about independence, Mm -hmm. but the negotiation between those things, like Mm -hmm. what can you do, but also what Mm -hmm. is happening with the group. And so I guess, um, I'm curious to know, you did collaboration before you did outward bound before you had relationships before, Mm -hmm. but now there's something new that's happening. And, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a different, quality of, of negotiation or different mm-hmm. a k- kind of we-ness um, mm-hmm. and how, how do you think that's related 
to having had this accident and being so like immobilized for so long. Mm -hmm. Let me, let me be sure I understand your question. Okay. (laughs) And the answer might be, it's not related. I guess I'm saying like, what is the, the, um, I guess I could imagine a person who had never done a collaboration with anyone before and now was suddenly like, oh, I really am interested in collaboration or I never was able to be in love with anyone before. Mm. But now something changed for me and I'm porous Mm -hmm. in a way. So so there's a difference. There's a Mm. shift. Mm. But it's 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 um, uh, I guess I'm wondering about like. Is it a difference of intensity, of of quality, and also like, do you have any way of of understanding like, what was it? Was it like literally having, uh, you know, being less independent, yeah. so that yeah. you then had to tolerate mm-hmm. reliance, and that trained you to accept or enjoy a different kind of a relationship that was less independent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I get it now. I totally get your question. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it, it's so great. It's such a great question. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't understood this about myself until you asked me this question. So um, it made me think immediately of when I was 21, I got married as a woman, I was a woman marrying a man mm-hmm. in a big Catholic church, <laughs> in a big this Catholic wedding. This is something wedding. we did not discuss in our previous <laughs> meeting. <laughs> okay. And, you know, this is in Tennessee, like doing all the things. Um, like the big, the big rift there was that my family was Pentecostal and John's family was Catholic and never the two shall meet. Wow. Right. Like that was the big wow. challenge. Okay. okay. Um, there was even a question at one point whether my grandparents were going to come to a full Catholic mass wedding. Okay. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> now you get yeah. some context. Yeah. I remember distinctly, and I loved John. There was no question in my mind. He was wonderful. We had a great time. <laughs> and I remember, though, sort of having a bit of fear the day of the wedding and consoling myself by saying, well, if it doesn't work out, you'll just get a divorce. Mm -hmm. And that was so clear to me that this was absolutely an option. Who gives a shit if you're getting married? You don't have to stay married forever. Now, part of that was my mom had been married three times. Part of that was my dad had been married eight times. What? Wow. At that point, he hadn't been married eight times. Now he's been married eight times. At that point, he'd been married four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so divorce, not that big of a deal, right? I, I entered into, so we did get, surprise, we got divorced. <laughs> um, but, um, but fast forward to even getting into this collaboration with Trace mm. for Troubling the Line. I kind of approached it the same way without even knowing that I had a gut, a sort of intuition. This person seems awesome. I really like their work. I don't know them. Do I need to build a relationship with them beforehand? 
nah, we're just going to do a book together. Mm. Not understanding you are actually committing to a life story together, even if you're not in each other's lives as the story develops. Yeah. I, so that is to say, it's not to say I wouldn't do it the same again. I feel like troubling the line is wonderful. I'm really glad Trace and I absolutely went through our ups and downs and you know, it, it was a marriage that we were both like, Oh shit, (laughs) we're married and we just met. Um, but now it's wonderful and, and feels so wonderful and productive and easy. But now when I think about collaborating with people, I, what I don't want to do is lose the sense of following my gut. Mm -hmm. But what I feel like I've added to it, hopefully without adding too much caution is more intentionality Mm. and more, recognition that you're not just going to sort of travel parallel paths. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna knock each other off your, off your road. You know, you're gonna end up in a ditch. No two silos in the field. There's no silos. This is such a joke. (laughs) Like what, who fucking came up with that? Um, (laughs) So, so hopefully, and, and how I feel about, collaboration now is that I I will feel love that is part of it but I will also have to choose love and that is actually a bigger part of it I think before I thought oh I'll just love you till I don't love you right two two other questions related to this what are you working on now in your writing Mm. um I'm working on the reason I pause is because sometimes I get a little scared to say what I'm working on for fear that it will sort of like stop. Oh yeah. You don't have also whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I don't want to stop you. No, no, you're not, you're not going to stop. Anyway, I have been working on two things. One is this series of what I'm calling word problems where I am looking at like sexual abuse from my childhood, physical abuse from my childhood, um, racism from my childhood, just sort of general violence Mm. really um, from growing up in the South. I grew up in Southeastern Tennessee. Recognizing that as uh, physical problems for sure, they have a very, uh, a very um, real manifestation in the world, but that in a lot of ways maybe came from linguistic problems or, or problems with sort of how we think about talking to others, mm. talking with others, talking with ourselves, the questions we ask ourselves. So there's that. Mm-hmm. And then this other project which may or may not be related a series of letters to melissa Uh and melissa is my birth name and hence missy Uh hence missy mo um (laughs) it's hilarious (laughs) um and i i started that after reading um khadijah queen's um is it fearful beloved i think yes fearful beloved Yes. yes 
and you know, in that she has a lot of, uh, poems called dear fear mm-hmm. where she's writing to her fear. And, um, that just cracked something open for me and just utterly mm. popped like a, a rivet, you know? And, um, and I think that was happening before the accident and, and also started to pick up some steam a little bit as I started to recover because as I was laying around, um, I noticed my body start to change again. So I had been, you know, I've always been relatively athletic, um, without really even sort of thinking so much about that. Mm. Um, but then I started, when I started testosterone, I started to get, um, leaner, Mm. um, you know, and I could sort of, uh, accrue a little bit, a very tiny little bit of muscle more than I could before. (laughs) And so I thought of myself as ripped. (laughs) And, um, and then after the accident, I started to gain weight. Mm. Um, the muscle went away And so what that meant, I haven't had top surgery. So my breasts, my breasts are bigger now than they've ever been in my life. Um, my hips are suddenly very much my mother's hips. Um, and so I wouldn't say that I detransitioned, but my body went through another transition as a result of the, another gender transition as a result of this accident. And so it felt like Melissa was very present, um, you know, or so she had sort of come back in some way to say almost to check in on me or something. And so I felt like I also wanted to check in on her, you, you know, and I often felt like I was looking around at my life, which Timothy said something about his life in that panel, I'm more comfortable now, mm-hmm. you know, like at this yeah. place in my life. And there was that too, right? Where I'm passing, I'm with a partner, we own a house, something I never thought, two things I did not think would be on my horizon. Um, you know, I have health insurance, <laughs> things like that. So I was like, I went through a, a relative amount of shit and then also was willing to, to duke it out either psychically, emotionally, physically, uh, on behalf of being my sort of queer gender, queer self. So I really wanted to sort of look back at her and, and say, was it worth it? Like, did we do a good job? Mm. You know, are you proud? Like, I, I, I really wish I could sort of grab this like 16 year old's hand and sort of like pull her here and just be like, what do you think? Yeah. Like, what do you think about this house? You like it, you know? Um, or what do you think about this life? I'm sitting here in the poetry center, you know, for the last five hours talking about poems. Yeah. Does this seem good to you? Do you think she would think that? I mean, I kind of think she'd dig it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I really think, I think she would dig it. Do you remember what you wanted when you were 16? Oh my God. You know, that's such an amazing question. What did she want at 16? 
can I ask another question while you think about that? Totally. I'm interested in... I'm interested that when I asked you um, what you wanted at 16, you said, what did she want at 16 instead of what did I want at 16? And you're talking about this other, you know, this part of yourself, but it's also you, but it, but also experienced by others and in the world as not you. Right. And so I was just curious about that. Like when you think of your past, do you think of yourself in third person always? No, not always at all. Okay. I was just not at all. Okay. Um, there is something about that. Not even my 16 year old self, but there is a, an age range that is more young woman age range that I tend to tend to think in third person. Uh-huh. Whereas, you know, my sister sent me a picture of us when we were eight in, you know, five and there were, my immediate response was look at us. Oh my God, look at me. You know, things like that. I don't, so I don't have that distance with like a younger self. Uh-huh. And maybe that's because I don't know why I'm guessing right now. Maybe I'm trying to make a really neat sort of trans narrative out of it, but you know, it's pretty tomboyish as a, as a kid. And then, um, you know, in junior high, junior high and high school is also pretty tomboyish. And then like into college, I essentially tried to, uh, be a young woman, you know, I really tried to make that switch. So, I grew my hair out, things like that. And that is a time when I look at it, I know it's me, I recognize it, but I do think I, there is a, a, a psychological distance. Um, I think less though about gender and more though about, I see this person trying, trying on so many people or Mm. trying trying to please and perform I remember at that time just feeling desperate right Mm. for the answer um so my 16 year old self would have been like fuck the answers like (laughs) I'm smoking cigarettes and driving fast and like sitting on the dock you know it's like all the (laughs) things you do in the south at 16 (laughs) like you know jumping off cliffs and shit um I think I I wanted at 16 passion, hmm. whereas, uh, you know, in a, a sense that my passion, my sort of uh, my deep desire for the world was not wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, when I was like 22, let's say, I, I, I slipped into a place of wanting the answers. Hmm. Um and then had to get a divorce to sort of shake myself out of that again. How long were you married? Oh, like three years. Interesting. Like two and a half. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you said in your bio, you said something about we we make and are made by our, our the spaces that, that we inhabit. 
And I thought that was such a beautiful um, way of saying what I feel like I have spent the past two days fighting with other Mm. people here about Mm -hmm. um, in a, in a kind of like coded way. Um, And I think it's just so interesting. Like I wish I'd had that language. I feel Mm. like it might've been less threatening Mm. to (laughs) some of the men that um, uh, seem to feel really attached to the idea that like they are one thing it's not that they they can't change but it's like something there seems to be a lot of anxiety around the way in which they might be affected by like the outside world i don't know it's a very strange masculinity is a silo it is it is the it is, I should say, toxic masculinity. I mean, our, our model for masculinity is exactly that. It is in, impenetrable, right? I mean, like, that, that feels like the definition of masculinity is, like, w- cannot be penetrated, whereas in some ways the definition of femininity is can be and should be penetrated. Oh, my God, TC, that's, yeah. How did I, because I, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like what's happening? Like, why do I keep banging into the same wall? Like, I don't feel like I'm saying anything like threatening. You weren't. (laughs) So weird. It was so painful to watch sometimes because you could literally see the way that you were directing toward others, like toward engagement, toward conversation and how, others would respond with monologues like not at all with oh well let me take in your idea let it sort of bounce around with my idea a little bit maybe even change it just a skosh um, or redirect my question or something yeah it was um that was painfully apparent at some points <laughs> it was so weird too because the the panel that i'm referring to more is the one that was called poetry and social engagement i know and i was like what is happening here this is the weirdest thing and and those monologues um and i think that is a good word for them were super interesting to me like i was like oh that's so interesting um but yeah it was like this weird like um deflection thing and uh like i just it it was totally fascinating and i i just somehow felt i just feel like that that metaphor which is both a metaphor and not a metaphor would have been the right one Mm -hmm. because like i don't know if you noticed how many times like building things came up and like you know tools and we gotta gotta sharpen our tools i was like oh my god this is hilarious um so the the so the idea of like being made by the space that you're in mm-hmm. so beautifully like combines both ways of like thinking about um porousness, mm-hmm. receptivity, mm-hmm. um openness, vulnerability, but also a kind of like um buildings don't like subsume you in a certain way so there's like a certain kind of like objective um uh 
I don't know. It's like there seems something safer about that. Next mm. time I'm going to try to use that. Nice. Yeah. It's all yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, okay. So but then also back to your bio, I was thinking, didn't you say that, that you were writing the kinds of poems you could only write in Tucson? What did you say Probably. about Tucson? Yeah. But I was just curious about the Tucson part of what's happening in your life. Cause it's been, so it's five years. Yeah. I said I could only have those kinds of conversations in Tucson. Oh, the only kinds of conversations. Yeah. Right. That's really important. Yeah. So, so you're still in Tucson. I am. And you, now you own a house. We do. So yes. you're like in Tucson in a different, in a slightly different way. It's interesting because in some ways buying the house has opened up the possibility for us to leave in a way that of course I could never have predicted. I mean, the way that, right. Like getting married. Constraint. You can get divorced. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly, <laughs> but kind of, um, in, in the way that a constraint sort of opens up, right possibility that you thought was actually foreclosed on. Right. Um, so, so yes, I, we are in Tucson. I am in Tucson. I, I love being in Tucson and I've suddenly, not suddenly, I mean, for the last several years, I've been thinking about divinity school as a oh, possibility. Wow. And, and then just honestly, four or five days ago, I thought, wait, do I want to get a PhD in creative writing? Oh. And that was a jarring thought. One I truly have never entertained. So I po so I did what any good researcher would do. I posted on Facebook and I asked <laughs> the people. Yeah. They have lots of feelings just so you know about, about this possibility in my life. <laughs> but it was, it's been great to, to talk with folks who do have their PhDs in creative writing or who are in the process but also to think out loud about um, a Masters of Divinity. Because I grew up Pentecostal and because I, um, well, blatantly rejected it when I came out as queer and still have a very fraught relationship with any sort of religion, but in particular Christianity, the idea of of entering into a space where that is an ongoing topic of conversation. Actually, it's not a problem of it being a topic of conversation. It's if people believe it to be the one truth, uh -huh. that is very intimidating to me. So, and not something I'm sure I want to do, but I am, um, sort of coming out as someone who is, uh, deeply invested in spiritual questions mm -hmm. um, and the ways that text is uh, seems to, or creating text is a, a spiritual practice. Um, I mean, I often feel when I write that I've, I've sort of tapped into or something is speaking through me, even as I am also crafting it and know that I, TC, am crafting it. It also feels like a tiny miracle every time I look down and there are new words that have come together that weren't there before. So, so that's a thing that's happening. And, and I don't know if I would have felt free to 
imagine leaving Tucson if I didn't have a very clear thing that would always keep me, or not always, but at least for this moment, keep me tethered to Tucson. Yeah. So that's happening. But I think specifically what I was getting at in that statement, it's echoing something Terrence said in the panel where he said, my mom actually thinks I'm a quiet person because we don't talk about poetry. Uh-huh. And I, that's a very real experience for me in my family um, or in the South. Um, Tucson is the place where I came out as trans. You know, I, um, I really came into myself as a poet. Um, I, I feel like I have a full... I should say a well-rounded version of myself exists here. There is a very important version of myself that does not exist here. That feels like it can only be made manifest in the South. And I miss that. But this sort of three quarters TC (laughs) is, um, is, is rich. And, and I, I'm not going to go sort of back there and let go of this and don't quite yet know how to maybe integrate them. That's fascinating. Is that because of, is it about the South? Is it about your past? Is it about people and places that were witnesses to something you're not really anymore? I'm sure it could be all of those things. One part of it that comes to mind is a sort of deep anti-intellectualism that exists in the South and, and exists in my family. Um, I think they're proud of me. They love me, things like that. But, but I get a lot of, you know, we don't know what you're talking about. You know, you, you know, you're using big words, things like that. Um, at the same time, and I've written a little bit about this, it was a, a real breakthrough for me to recognize my grandfather's sort of love of literacy th- through his love of the Bible. Like this is a man who's n- probably truly never read another book in his life. He has like an eighth grade education, you know, like that's it. Um, and he's, I would say he's read the Bible a hundred times. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. So I found myself one day saying to my students, you know, you could probably learn more from reading one book 20 times than you could from reading 20 different books. And in the back of my head, it's like, that's what Papa does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, like maybe he's actually wildly literate, you know, or, or, or a deep reader that you've never given him credit for. Anyway, I say, so there's an anti-intellectualism that is pervasive with regard to, um, to anything that can't be pointed back to the Bible, you know? You know, it's interesting. So I think you've always done things um, that are not, quote unquote intellectual that's always been a huge part of your practice whether it's um, being in nature whether it's being in your body 
whether it's dance, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, and you could think of them as hobbies, but they're not hobbies. Mm-hmm. They are like the sustaining interests, obsessions, practices, mm-hmm. compulsions, things that, that we do that really, if we're, if we're kind of open and honest, are, are often much more important to us mm-hmm. and influential than the things that we read mm-hmm. or the kind of philosophers that we encounter in the world or whatever the high intellect, you know, the classes that we take or whatever it is. And, and I don't know, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Like what are the, the parts of your life that are essential to you to you and to your writing that are not considered intellectual in that in the in those ways mm-hmm. I mean I think you're absolutely right that I was gonna say that that I am also at my core anti-intellectual <laughs> um, that uh, there is a body knowledge or a, a a knowledge of the world through my body that feels uh, sort of integral mm-hmm. to to my writing and and also to my living. So things like that would be walking, which of course hiking is one aspect of that. But I just mean walking to and from. I live forty five minutes a 45 minute walk from school uh-huh. and I walk to and from school, which to some people that, you know, every, every time I say that to someone, they say, why don't you just ride your bike? Mm. And I said, because I don't like riding a bike that much. I like walking. Mm-hmm. There's it. It is so important to me to just be outside seeing the things that are of the world. <laughs> Do you listen to headphones when you walk? No. Do you have a, like a rule about that? I don't have a rule about it. Um, sometimes I talk on the phone, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes I listen to a podcast, but I, I mostly don't mm-hmm. do either of those things. Um, because I just love it. I love it so much. <laughs> and so that's, that's one thing. Um, another thing is dance, which you, you referenced, um, you know, I'm not trained as a dancer, but I have done modern dance with this group, with Movement Salon, for for years. And what are some other things? I mean, sports were always really important to me growing up. I was, just so you know, I was most athletic. I believe you. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, that sort of um, engaging with self and others through play I was going to say through competition and that's part of it but mostly it just feels like I love being a part of a team where mm-hmm. where we we run around and chase things I love that feeling it's why I participate in like committees at school mm-hmm. even though we're not running around we are in we are chasing things believe me so that um you know, honestly, even things like sex, mm-hmm. that is not an intellectual activity, but it, I can mine sort of a lot of information from about how I, um, how I do other things, how I, um, 
how I relate to my friends, how I take care of my dogs, like Mm -hmm. all that comes out in sex too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's weird. I feel like so much of it, so much of my living is a metaphor for other ways that I live. Okay. Okay. Can you say more about that? I can't. Because I feel like if I, if, because I just, I imagine the listener going like, (laughs) she's so uptight. She didn't ask any follow-up questions about that. And that's like, I really wanted to know what, how come she didn't ask TC what to say more about sex. More about sex. Totally. Well, so if I think about, um, if I like how, well, is this like, can I be R-rated? I, I don't know why not. I okay, mean, in cool. the beginning, I can say like this. My favorite thing to say is, this podcast acknowledges the existence of sex. And then I can say like, nice. R-rated. That's amazing. But also, who decides what's R? Well, I'm going to get graphic. Okay, go for it. Okay. <laughs> so, well, so I think about, you know, if I'm at a point in my life where I am, say, wanting to get fucked, right? Like, um in particular, if I'm wanting to get fucked in my vagina, then there is some way that that tends to play out in other parts of my life where I am, um, I find that psychologically I'm also wanting to be like opened or entered or uh, like encountered in ways that I have no control over, which does not imply assault, right? But but Im- implies like literally touching me in a place that I can't find on my own almost, mm. um, or that I need sort of someone else to help me help me access. Um, and that's not a thing that I always want sexually. So it, then let's say I'm having a hard time like initiating even just like making out with my partner. Hmm. Well, that probably is also playing out in, am I like asking for help in other ways or am I vulnerable in other ways? Even am I making dinner, like making risky choices with, with dinner or am I just making sort of the same? Do you know Uh, what I'm saying? Like it really does not, it's not a one-to-one, but there are a lot of parallels. And I find that also in hiking. I'll, I'll notice wow, you're really just kind of, you keep going to hike the same loop. Uh-huh. Like this is sort of your, you're riding out your comfort zone right now. And what a surprise. You're also riding out your comfort zone sexually and in the conversations you're having, you know? Um, so I usually will, can sort of track that in any number of ways and find both the safe and risky way to shake myself Mm -hmm. out of those, uh, those ruts. And sometimes writing is that way, right? Mm. Like sometimes for instance, right now trying to write a narrative of some sort, um, or something deeply legible (laughs) would be, um, would be a real risk for me. (laughs) And, um, and, and so how is that also playing out? Yeah. With, you know, with sex with my partner, um, it's probably playing out in kind of like heteronormative looking sex. Interesting. Frankly. Do you have any sense of whether the shifts in your life 
are based on are there causal things is it is it sort of episodic and cyclical does it um can how how much um will or intention do you have over the process and how much of it is sort of noticing kind of what's been happening recently and then just like uh, I either pushing yourself a little bit in the opposite direction to go towards homeostasis or or um, or accepting oh that's where I am right now and I know that it, things change I suck at that part no I don't ever <laughs> I almost never say like you know this is just for now <laughs> things are going to change on their own that's Rosie like that's my partner that's uh-huh. her line like my line is, oh my fucking God, this needs to change right now. Otherwise this is how it's going to be forever. So, you know, throw a brick through the window, uh-huh. you know, um, <laughs> perfect match that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I find myself, I mean, I do a, a fair amount of sort of trying to, to keep track of what I'm doing in my life. I mean, a thing that there's a couple ways to look at that. One is sort of through this like hypervigilance lens of a trauma survivor, right? Who, who has had to navigate very dangerous, like home life, right? Situations. And so someone who is always attuned to, to what is happening, what are, what are the sort of like escape routes? Um, and, and, and waiting for something to slowly change over time is not an option, right? <laughs> like, like shit is fucked up. We got to change it. Um, or I think there's another way to think about it. Um, so I, I do think I'm hypervigilant <laughs> and that has served me well. I also think I am in a process of trying to turn that into attentive or, you know, paying a- attention I think it's Simone Vi who says, if I'm remembering the quote correctly, attention is the most natural form of prayer. And, and so that's a way of taking this hypervigilance and making it a love for the world or, um, or a, a praise song, um, for all that does exist around us that we just don't notice all the time. Um, so I, that is to say that I am tracking how I'm brushing my teeth, you know, with what regularity and how that relates to how I'm eating and how that relates to the sex I'm having with my partner. And so I don't want to create new binaries, but in phases of your life where you're, more risky versus more receptive. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll use those terms. Yeah. Um, do you notice that you tend to be uh, writing more legible mm. work or, or a different, like it, is there a correlation between those? And do you, do you ever wonder if like, which, causes which like if it's Mm, if mm. you know if you're working on a project 
are you going to is that going to push you into one of those states and kind of keep you in that state mm. or is it that you're in that state and you're like ah in this state i'm going to be more able to do this kind of writing mm, that's great i i really do think of writing and and here i don't mean content i mean form um as a practice for how I live like it, it and it's not that's not some something that I on a poem by poem level can necessarily track that but let's say looking at the last 10 poems I can start to see oh yeah for instance with this dear Melissa work a ton of m dashes like they're they're all over the place and I can see that incremental change, that deny, that deep desire and need to slide one thing into another. Like, not a big jump. You're not going to make any major changes right now. You're just going to connect it very slowly and gently. Um, now, when I first started using the M-dash, I didn't know that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. But now I can see that. Um, whereas, you know, I look back at, the poems, uh, some of the poems in Gafai Romania, you know, they're horizontal, lots of white space, you know, spread out all across the page. That was when I was wearing a compression shirt huh. all the time. So I would get home and rip that thing off and finally breathe. You huh. know, it was like all I wanted was to take up space. I needed to take up space, you know, so the page was this place where I could essentially take off my compression shirt. Wow. And now I live without a compression shirt. So I don't feel the need to sort of stretch all over the page. In fact, I'm curious, you know, now about other forms on the page. So um, that is, I can see and have seen the way that formally my poems are, are practiced. They, they are me developing who I am and practicing being who I can, being who I can be in the world on the page. Mm. That's yeah. such a beautiful example also of um, something that Chiku said, um, which just blew me away in the panel. Um, <clears throat> I can't remember their question he was responding to, but it was a really good question. Um, but he said, identity is the form. Mm -hmm. And I, I just thought, oh my God, I'm gonna, it's going to take me months to really kind of think that through. Yes. But that is one really beautiful example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this idea, sort of making that binary between um, between expression or construction. Yes. Right? You said there's that, sort of like maybe two, two types of yes. poets or something like that. And to me, that it has always been a both and. Yes. Right? Like, like how could it... In fact, this is the place where I come for the both and. Yeah, so to me, that that is the the liberation of poetry, is that... When I am, let's say, singing, you know, to use Terence's sort of phrasing around that, when I'm singing, there's meaning in that. I, I am telling a story, or, or there is a story that it could be a part of. My song is a part of a story. I don't need to write the story, right? <laughs> like, I'm just a part of it. When I'm telling a story, it hopefully involves some song, you know? So, yeah, to, I just... Um, to me, that's the exciting part about poems is that I'm shaping them and they're shaping me at the same time. Yeah. So you didn't talk about about teaching, 
Um, cause I didn't, I don't know oh. what happened with your teaching for the past year and a half and what you're, where you're teaching now. Yes. I love teaching. Um, I am teaching here at the U of A. I teach, I'm a lecturer here. So I teach composition and this semester I'm very lucky. I get to teach advanced composition, wow. which is a hoot because basically I was given zero template. <laughs> which meant I got to just do what I wanted. So I'm teaching an entire semester on love. Oh. And so we started with a more sort of like social um, love or political definitions of love. And that was the first unit. And now we are looking at this great book called Islands of Decolonial Love. Whoa. I know. Um, Who wrote that? Is it an anthology? By, no, it is by, um, an Ojibwe writer from Canada. L I think Leanne Simpson. Okay. I think that's her last name. Um, it's fiction and po it's prose and poetry, I uh -huh. should say. It's beautiful. And it's also blowing my students' minds because they, they're... Uh, coming up against how colonized their ideas of love are. That's really what's happening. And so that that's really great. And we're also reading as a sort of uh, companion piece, Bell Hooks, All About Love. So mm. a little bit of theory, a little bit of poetry and prose. That's what we're doing this unit. And then the last unit will be more researchy stuff, neuroscience that kind of thing. I want to take this class. It is so ridiculously fun. I mean, I just, I can't believe it's a coup. Oh. So that's happening. Um, that's what I'm doing here at the U of A. And then I'm also teaching through the Poetry Center. I'm teaching at um, a Gay Straight Alliance in a high school. I'm teaching them poetry in uh -huh. their sort of after school program. Teenagers? Teenagers. Uh -huh. Yep. And then I'm teaching at OSU Cascades, uh -huh. doing the low residency thing. Got it. Some of those things would have to stop if you went back to school. I mean, I'll say. Yeah, that's <laughs> a lot of stuff. It's really too much stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. it part of the, the challenge of thinking of going back to school is that I genuinely do love my life um, juggle right now. Mm -hmm. It feels... Full, but full of things that I really am enjoying. But I've also, in, this weekend, listening to these lectures, well, I can't tell if that has been sort of an impetus to drive me towards getting a PhD or has, or has sort of said to me, maybe you can get this need met mm. in these types of, settings or, you know, sort of putting myself through my own personal <laughs> curriculum. Yeah. Maybe. Because you want to be having more conversations like this. I like these conversations. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm not, you know, going back to that idea of the, the, the career, I'm not searching for a tenure track position. I really love working with undergrads I also am really loving working with grad students, but I would, I, I'm not on that track to sort of just get to working with grad students. Yeah. 
And I genuinely enjoy teaching comp because it pushes me as a teacher quite a bit. And I, I like that challenge. So that is all just to say, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just looking to expand a conversation that I can do in other ways, which is why it's still such a question for me. You know, I, I haven't decided whether I will or will not pursue a PhD. I am curious to know what were some of the parts of the of the conference um, that you liked that made you feel like, oh, I want to, I want to be doing more of this. Mm. Just curious. You know, the my biggest takeaway, and I almost cried. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Seeing that first day, the the poetry and social engagement, and um, what was the next panel? Poetry and practice. Yeah, poetry and practice. Yeah. Watching you all relate with each other and watching you all argue and disagree uh-huh. was beautiful. Oh. I don't love the ways some of those things happened, right? It seemed clear to me that you all have a mutual respect and love for one another. Yeah. That can weather those kinds of disagreements or rubs. And that's what was so beautiful about it. Mm. So I was watching this happen, taking notes, loving it. Also, my brain's just filling up, you know. I get in the car, turn on the radio, and there's Trump uh, talking about we're going to create mental institutions and lock people up. And the contrast was so stark to me. And really my sadness was we have people in the world who are wonderful at disagreeing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're wonderful at thinking. They're, they're wonderful at nuance and at love. Mm. Like all of those things. Mm -hmm. And yet this guy <laughs> <laughs> is on the fucking radio and, yeah. and all the other places he is. Yeah. Right. Um, it made me so sad for our humanity because, because I love us. Right? Like I genuinely feel so much love for humans, especially when I see humans doing some of their most brilliant things, like disagreeing and thinking <laughs> and loving at the same time. It's amazing. So, so that I would say is, is my big, the big thing that I loved. Um, I loved that you weren't on the same page. Yeah. Right. I love that. Um, I also loved, and this is going to blow you up a little bit. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to take it. I hate it. <laughs> but I did. I genuinely, I, I so often hunger for people to put into practice their theory. And yesterday in the social engagement panel, you said, let's not just talk about social engagement. Let's engage socially. You started this panel off today, poetry and autobiography let's have you think about why are you here? <laughs> Bring yourself into this room. And it destabilized so much of, of what I can't stand. So it's not even that I have an issue with hierarchy. Sometimes hierarchy is fine. Like I can totally be, be fine with that. But there, the subject matter, the theory 
depends on enactment for these things. So it, it was beautiful. I loved that. And then we had this rich, yes, disagreeable (laughs) conversation, but people were in it instead of just sitting there, their heads bobbing. (laughs) It's so interesting. I mean, I, I was looking forward to this so much and, and, but also dreading it in certain mm-hmm. ways. Just, mm-hmm. you know, it came uh, less than a week after I came back from McDowell. So I've been yes. away so much and it's just too much for my 10 year old. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, but I committed to this like two years ago or something. Right. Um, and, and then to feel that there, there is some relief for me that it's over um, but also a lot of sadness, which I felt every step away, uh, every step along the way with these lectures, it's mm. relief. Um, and then just sadness, like how can I somehow maintain something about this experience that's so important to me, whether it's the conversations with the audience, whether it's the conversations with other lecturers, whether it's having things put in place that I'm that are um, that I'm looking forward to in terms of like oh and then I will have to mm-hmm. have something to say mm-hmm. when I go to Tucson mm-hmm. that there's a structure that demands a certain kind of attention from me yeah. it's interesting because I feel sort of like exhausted mm-hmm. um, like oh my god I'm never gonna do anything ever again <laughs> ever <laughs> and also like what's gonna happen now because my regular life is not um, I don't have very much contact with uh, in, or this kind of contact right and that's the thought you know that's the thing that that feels compelling about a PhD right? yeah is that you ostensibly are with a community of people who are interested in these, in these types of conversations and who are also interested in being in community um, for a period of time. So in some ways it's like buying time, you know? Um, Yeah. But that's certainly the question, right? How much can I spend on that? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. You want to read something? Oh, sure. Okay. Um, I mean, should I read... Maybe I should read a poem by Hafiz. You you can. Maybe is that a cop out? No. To not read my own work? No. Okay, in that case. Okay. I happen to have it right here. Great. Are we gonna end with this? We are. Okay. This has been delightful. This is so wonderful. Thank you. I love you. Oh, I love you. Admit something. This is again by Hafiz. Admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not say this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language, what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. This has been episode 51 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm Rachel Zucker. Commonplace producers are Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalita, and James Ciano. 
Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Music performed and written by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Thank you to our patrons. Thank you to the presses who support Commonplace, especially for this episode, Asada Press, Pity Milk Press, Cory Press, Night Boat Books, AK Press, and ARP Books. And thank you, listener. Thank you for listening. <laughs>